You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. This week... People say that this is the worst crisis facing Sri Lanka independence from the British. Ruth Pollard on Sri Lanka's warning to the world. And later, Stephen Mim on the stronger dollar's role in hurting developing nations. First, related to the global pain, oil. Paid for, of course, in dollars. Let's get to Liam Denning. Liam, oil prices have come down over the last few weeks. How has that affected supply and demand? Well, I think it's a reflection of anticipation of supply and demand. So, you know, the run-up we saw in the, say, first and second quarter of the year was really explicitly linked to the disruption of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and fears of what that might mean for supply as sanctions began to ramp up, as some buyers of Russian crude began to draw back voluntarily for fear of reputational or regulatory backlash. There's an old saying in the industry, which is that the cure for high oil prices is high High oil oil prices. prices. Mm. So quite quickly, we saw this alternative narrative begin to come into the market, which is, you know, the economy is just recovering from COVID, the global economy, uh, and is still suffering the effects of that recurrent shutdowns in China China, and that sort of thing. So people began to worry, well, we're seeing these high prices now, everyone's panicking, but what if this all tips into a recession next year? And I think those are the two competing narratives we're seeing. I think the reality is that expectations of disruption to Russian oil supply were probably a bit overplayed Mm. at the beginning. People were talking about, you know, two to three million barrels of Russian supply immediately getting knocked off the market. A little bit of panic, yeah. Some has been, but nowhere near that figure. You know, the Russians have found ways to sell their oil at a discount. In the meantime, we are definitely seeing pressure on the European economy from all sorts of Ukraine-related pressures, notably around what's going to happen with natural gas. And we are starting to see signs of American drivers, still the single biggest pool of oil demand on the planet, starting to maybe take notice of those high gasoline prices that we've seen. Even though they have been coming down... I actually saw $4 something at the pump the other day. <laughs> yeah, so, so you know, they went above 5 bucks for the first time ever in June, I believe it was. Mm. And that does appear to have had an effect in the context of broader inflationary pressure. Exactly. Now, OPEC Plus meets Wednesday, and it, of course, includes Russia. Will Russia counter calls for more Persian crude? I think they will do so probably in the background. Mm. OPEC Plus, in some ways, is in a strong position, right? You know, Oil prices are high. 
everyone's worried about tight supply. We haven't seen U.S. shale roar back as it might have done a few years ago because of the constraints placed on it by investors. On the other hand, it's also in a difficult position. The likes of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, the big players in OPEC+, Plus, certainly don't want to tip the global economy into a recession. That doesn't do them any, any good. Any good, yeah. As much as they are trying to deal with what they see as a United States that is pulling back from the Middle East, they also face a reality that they still depend overwhelmingly on the United States for their defense, for weapon sales, for the presence of the fleet, for defending shipping lanes, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So they are playing this balancing act of trying to keep Russia within OPEC and not They worked be seen. hard to get Russia in in the first place. Exactly. And they had to at the time because they had kind of lost their position of influencing prices. So they're trying to keep Russia on board and you know, not be seen to, for example, direct lots of oil towards Europe to help it out. At the same time, they don't want to completely break with the US, you know, and don't forget President, President Biden, Biden was, just, was there. just there. Will that have made a difference? It didn't seem to, at the time, they were keeping their options open, felt like. I actually think it's hard to say. You know, I think that the broad reaction was that it was kind of a meh kind yeah. of tour, like nothing happened. I think, frankly, it's too early to say. You know, I think Biden's aim was a couple of things. One was to essentially get over this issue he's had with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, his whole call to make him a prior on the campaign trail without completely being seen to get down on his knees. And 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 at the same time, affirm that the US was still a presence in the Middle East. We won't really know how much of an effect that's had for a while because it will come through actions, you know, what will Biden do the next time a missile gets lobbed in from Yemen? What will he do with the next call for, for an arms sale? It's it's hard to say. I want to talk to you a little bit about natural gas in Europe as well. There's a relationship there between the two, obviously, but natural gas is trading sort of 10 times higher than it was. 10 times. I mean, that's a huge increase. And there's almost no supply. We're at 20% capacity now. And there's a fear that Russia will cut it to zero, which it very possibly could. There's what, one turbine working or something? Yeah, I mean, I think... Working with quotation marks. Certain yeah. amount of salt. I mean, turned we've seen, on. <laughs> right, we, we saw them do this actually with the deliveries from the Caspian pipeline not too long ago where, you know, a documentation issue was, was getting in the way. Mm. I think, look, the way to think about this is Europe is very dependent on Russian gas. You know, mm. Russian gas imports, I think last year was something like 40% of Western Europe's gas consumption. Yeah. You, you can't do without that. The Russians, quite coincidentally, ran down their gas storage in Europe last fall, which was actually when we began to see these price increases come in way before the, um, Actual the invasion, invasion of mm. Ukraine. And I think the way President Vladimir Putin of Russia looks at this is there was this view at the beginning of the war that, well, Russia would be crazy to turn off the gas supply to Europe because, you know, it's a big source of revenue. Putin has invested billions upon billions in revitalizing the old Soviet legacy gas supply system to Europe. So why would he throw that away? Well, it looks like he has already thrown it away. I mean, it's ammunition. Right. But regardless of what happens with this war and what happens after, 
the energy relationship between Russia and Western Europe is fundamentally broken mm. at this point. Putin knows that. He's crossed that Rubicon already. So now what is he interested in? Well, what he's interested in is winning this war that he expected to last maybe 48, 72 hours, clearly didn't. And now he's locked in this grinding battle against Ukraine. And by extension, the West, because it's the West that's supplying the weapons that Ukraine is using. And I think from Putin's point of view, Russia is suffering. Its economy is suffering. As, as much as people point to, you know, a strong ruble and that sort of thing, over time, the lack of access to technology, the brain drain of people leaving, the effective dismantling of parts of the Russian gas system over time, that's all going to really hurt the economy. This year, the IMF is predicting Russia will have its deepest recession since the early 90s, which is mm. the post-Soviet chaos. However, will Putin be voted out of office? Not very Unlikely. likely. Mm -hmm. He looks at the West. He sees, you know, several governments having already fallen recently. Italy, uh, the UK prime minister, uh, France having Macron's time. parliamentary mm -hmm. loss of his parliamentary majority. Democrats struggling with high gasoline prices as they head to the midterms. And he thinks to himself, if I can just push on enough pain points economically, I can get these people to back off. And he may be right about that. You know, one of the things I've noticed about the European Union's response to this is rhetorically, at least, they're not really admitting what the issue is. And mm. the issue is Europe is already in an energy war with Russia. That's how Russia sees it. Europe is still talking of this as essentially an economic problem. You know, it's inflationary or it's going to cause cost of living increases and hardship and that sort of thing. No, it may have a significant chunk of its energy supply is simply cut off with implications that can range from high prices through to factories being shut down, people being thrown out of work, all the way through Knock to... Knock-on effects to the labour economy and everywhere right. else. Right, and economy. if you have a severe winter, all the way through to people being forced to choose between paying their gas bill or paying for food or, or literally freezing in their homes. This is a more existential threat than just some high gas prices and what it demands is a war economy and, and what I found interesting about you know the agreement that was reached this week for the EU to have this mechanism to cut gas demand by 15 percent you know Hungary's Viktor Orban actually denounced it on Facebook mm. as a step towards a war economy and you know we can leave Orban's politics aside but what I found amusing is yes that's exactly what it is and that's exactly what Europe needs it needs to think of this as a war and measures like rationing and planning and coordinating the gas policy to deal with a war situation. So what happens next then? At what point do leaders stop denying what's happening and try to deal with this? And I guess Germany is the obvious example. Do we see mandates, bigger mandates? It doesn't seem like asking people to cut their usage by 15% for some time is going to do much. I would look at it slightly differently in that I think... Agreements like that are a step towards grappling with the reality of the situation. Yeah. I think you can, in fact, I think you've seen signs of it in different places. You know, uh, for example, here in the US, we've seen President Biden invoke the Defense Production Act, not necessarily for oil or gas, but he did it for critical minerals, for batteries. And that's quite a far-reaching power. It's an emergency it's power. Yeah. We've seen him dip into the SPR. Use the SPR exactly to adjust the taxes on gasoline prices. I think we're going to see this kind of action. Well, I'd say there's two parts. 
we're going to see this kind of action happen, particularly as we get closer to winter. And particularly if Putin decides, well, if the Europeans want to get off Russian gas, there's no way I'm going to wait around and help them do that. I'll just cut it off. Mm. Because as much as he'll take some financial hit, oil is really the mainstay of Russian revenue. The gas is really much more a geopolitical tool. Yes. So he will be quite willing to cut it off, I believe. And as that reality sinks in, European leaders in particular are going to be faced with a choice. Are they going to back up the rhetoric that they've been talking about with regards to Ukraine of defending values, of defending European security, and therefore adopt more kind of coordinated, planned war economy measures, whatever you want to call it Mm -hmm. on the energy side, or are they going to back down? Well, and they need to be voted in to office too, right? So they're thinking of their own domestic elections. And I mean, is it a case of once people are back in power? I mean, Macron has obviously, he won't have a legislative majority, but he's back in power. I mean, has he got more leeway now than, say, some of the other economies where there may not even be a government? I think this is part of the the problem Europe has that Putin tries to exploit. And we saw it, for example, in this 15%, the wrangling over this agreement. You saw particularly Southern European countries say, well, we kept our house in order and and Germany didn't. So why should we? Payback. And obviously payback for the euro. (laughs) Exactly. Now, we laugh about this, but that is exactly the sort of division that Putin seeks to exploit. Yeah. Clearly, some economies are much more exposed, Germany being the prime example. It's very difficult to say how this will play out because you can say under one scenario, we have a freezing winter, there's a deep recession in parts of northern and southern Europe, maybe people literally freezing to death in their homes. And a lot of people just say, why are we doing this? Ukraine? On the other hand, it's possible that Putin overplays his hand, Mm. does something pretty terrible like that. And that actually leads to people saying, this is untenable and as bad as this situation is, we simply can't tie ourselves to a situation where True, you know, it's, we it's, do what Russia says. At the same time, it's much easier as a citizen of a country to say that when you have your air conditioning or you have your heating, because that's what decisions depend upon, right? The electorate's mood, and it's not going to be very good if they're freezing. And that's absolutely what Putin will count on. I mean, the counterpoint I would say is I think there are two things that are quite obvious to a lot of voters in Europe. One is Putin's invasion of Ukraine is is wholly unjustified, Mm -hmm. awful. We've seen all the images. We're probably going to see a lot more over time. The second thing is it's quite obvious that the gas isn't flowing because Russia has turned it off. Yes. So if any sort of political support is to be built for seeing this through, it will have to rely on reinforcing those messages over and over again. But no question, this is going to be an extraordinarily hard winter for Europe. It's simply tied to, literally via a pipeline, a country that effectively sees the West as its enemy. And it's come to the fore now. Yeah. Liam Denning there. Do get in touch via Twitter at Vonnie Quinn or email vquinn at bloomberg.net. Opinions and comments always welcome. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. To Sri Lanka now and Ruth Pollard. So, Ruth, Sri Lanka is in default. Inflation is above 70%. We saw protesters sack the presidential palace, the flight of then-President Gotabaya Rajapaksa, who later resigned. Now the former Prime Minister, Ranil Wickremesinghe, has the presidency. He was voted into the presidency. Why did lawmakers vote him in in particular? I think Ranil is seen by lawmakers as a known quantity. He's pretty well respected on the global stage, having served as Prime Minister six different times over the past couple of decades. And he's seen as, I guess, a safe pair of hands to lead the negotiations with the International Monetary Fund over a much-needed bailout package for Sri Lanka. He got a lot of support from Godabaya Rajapaksa's ruling party in order to take power. So that's really important to bear in mind. Right, and he had promised a type of unity government, and yet of the 18 cabinet ministers that he can appoint, they all seem to be from his party, with the exception of perhaps two from one opposition party. That's not what the protesters were looking for, is it? Not at all. And indeed, Renil is seen as part of the problem by the protesters. He is seen as being from the political elite and therefore a really big part of what led Sri Lanka to this really, really dire situation that it finds itself in now. The protesters, obviously, they were calling for the resignation of Gotabaya Rajapaksa and they can claim some victory over having forced him from office and indeed forced him to flee the country. But Renil will have to find some way of really differentiating himself from the Rajapaksa government. And one way that he could do that is to accede to the protesters' demand to really cut back on the extraordinary powers of the presidency that Gotabaya awarded himself during his short term in office. It remains to be seen whether he will do that. I guess for him, the priority is talks with the IMF. Sri Lanka does have a big social safety net, but that hasn't helped. People are suffering and they're angry. That's right. I mean, he, he has two priorities, I think. One of them is obviously pushing ahead with these talks with the IMF, as well as at the same time seeking assistance from bilateral lenders like Japan, India and China, who to date have been sort of sitting on the sidelines and waiting to see what happens before they come up with any kind of cold hard cash. India has provided a lot of aid in terms of delaying loan payments and sending fuel and wheat and essential medicines to Sri Lanka. But what it really needs is cold hard cash to keep the economy going. The other priority for Vikramasinghe is to keep the protesters at bay while he tries to stabilise the country. Now, he did that to some extent by this violent overthrow of the protesters' camp outside the presidential residence last week. Mm. And obviously that move was widely condemned. But if he does wind back the powers of the presidency and show some goodwill towards the protesters, then that will go a long way to maintaining stability in the country. China's role, what will it be? President Xi Jinping has promised aid, but in fact Belt and Road Initiative spending has fallen to zero. What are China's intentions? It's very difficult to see what China's plan is with Sri Lanka beyond not getting caught up in the slow car crash that we've seen Sri Lanka going through in terms of its default and the political instability that has come after it. China has invested a lot in Sri Lanka over the years as part of its Belt and Road program, but that only makes up 10% of the debt that Sri Lanka owns. So we have to put China's role in this in very clear context. 
Yeah, a lot of the projects that China has funded are widely seen as white elephants, and many of them are clustered in the Rajapaksa heartland of Hambantota. Investors had been looking to Sri Lanka as an example of an emerging market economy that might default and now has defaulted. What kind of an example is this for investors in terms of other developing countries that might default, given that all the particulars are so individual in this case? Sri Lanka is very much seen as a warning in the South Asia region. Of course, we're all watching Pakistan with great interest. Mm. It too has unsustainable levels of foreign debt, but has just managed to negotiate a deal with the IMF that may see it stabilised somewhat. Of course, it is deeply reliant on bilateral lenders such as Saudi Arabia and China to back in that IMF loan and create even more stability. But It is still in a very difficult financial situation and it's certainly not out of the woods yet. Ruth, you've seen this before. Is this the worst crisis that Sri Lanka has seen? It's obviously been through very many of them. Yeah, I mean, obviously the civil war, which went for decades, was a terrible crisis that the country faced. But when I was in Sri Lanka last week, people from one end of the nation to the other said to me that this is truly the worst crisis. They have never had a situation where they've had to queue for fuel for days and days and days, where they've had no access to essential medicines and where people have been taking blood pressure medication, for example, every other day in order to conserve those pharmaceuticals, where schools haven't been able to operate. Exams can't be done because there's no money to print them on paper. And, of course, there's a food crisis. Farmers have not been able to harvest crops for sometimes two seasons now, and they're not even sure if they can plant next season's crops because there's no money to import fertilisers. So people say that this is the worst crisis facing Sri Lanka since it gained independence from the British. Ruth Pollard with us from New Delhi. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. By the way, do get in touch. Comments and opinions always welcome at Bonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at Bloomberg.net. Happy to have Stephen Mim with us now, columnist and University of Georgia history professor. We're going to talk about how the strength of the U.S. dollar has been a constant threat to developing nations. Stephen, the dollar index, DXY, was below 90 for the first half of last year. For context, right now we're above 107 and we've had a little reprieve this month, but we've been essentially strengthening all that time. Explain to us why this is so significant for other economies. It's very significant because every time the dollar strengthens, there's concurrent weakening of other currencies. And it's not just the euro. The currencies that are hit the worst and that have the greatest impact are the currencies issued by so-called emerging economies in Asia, Latin America, Africa, elsewhere in the world. And this weakening is something that poses some dangers for these economies. We know that already Sri Lanka and Russia are in default, both for idiosyncratic reasons, but also, at least in Sri Lanka's case, partially because the US dollar is so strong. We're looking at another couple of dozen countries daring default in the face. How much relief would we need to see on DXY in order for these economies to actually feel some relief? Well, a significant amount, which is highly unlikely at this point, I'm afraid, because there are all sorts of signals being given by the Federal Reserve 
that they will be serious about fighting inflation and that the war against inflation, particularly at this moment of global chaos, is one that will inevitably lead to the strengthening of the dollar. And the key here, of course, is that the strengthening of the dollar means that the debt of these emerging economies will start to rise, the burden of those debts, because they're denominated in dollars more often than not. And this is where we get to the idea of original sin. Explain to us what economists have deemed original sin, obviously not in the theological sense. Right, right. But, you know, economists are oftentimes blamed for being not very creative. But Barry Eichengreen, who's one of the economists in question who coined this phrase, have to be credited for coming up with a creative way of understanding or framing the question of why is it that many countries around the world are not permitted or unable to borrow in their own domestically issued currencies. Instead, they're forced to borrow in other countries' currencies, namely, uh, more often than not, dollars. And he called this uh, phenomenon original sin because When you look at a country like Argentina, for example, that is a serial defaulter, we often assume that the problem here lies with the institutions of Argentina or other other failings of the country in question, the emerging market in question. And what Eichen Green argued instead is that before any of this became a problem, these countries began borrowing in other countries' currencies, and that created the conditions for default, because when you borrow, especially sovereign debt in another country's currencies, you're hostage effectively to exchange rate fluctuations. And that also ties your hands in your own fiscal and monetary policy that you can leverage in a time of crisis. So original sin here is kind of the idea that this act of borrowing in a foreign currency predates all the other profligacy that we associate with emerging markets. And it's interesting because when we think of the major crises of our time, we obviously think of big stock market crashes or the great financial crisis, but also the currency crisis. They've been some of the biggest events in my lifetime. You point out in your column, this actually goes back 200 years, of course. That's right. And and it's been going on, you know, it's been a problem, especially in Latin America uh, since really the early 19th century, where, you know, these these countries borrowed and and not in dollars at that time. They were borrowing in pounds sterling or in in gold to to repay debts in gold. But it was effectively the same thing. It put them in the crosshairs of an exchange rate crisis, currency crisis. And and yes, this, this recurrent problem very different from like the 2007 crisis, but this recurring problem is one that dominated the existence for emerging markets for close to 200 years. Stephen, do you see conditions in place right now for a significant dollar-related event or group of events around the world? Yes, I do. That's not to say it, it will be guaranteed to happen, but the Fed is in this extraordinarily difficult position where it can't really go easy on inflation if it wants to maintain credibility. So if it does continue along those lines, you may see something very similar to what happened back in uh, beginning in early 19 or mid-1980, when Paul Volcker made it very clear to financial markets that he was he was going to tame inflation. But uh, the collateral damage of that was, for example, Mexico being 
plunged into the abyss not long afterward, and, and, and other countries following suit in some subsequent periods. So we've been down this road before, unfortunately. And while it's great for the dollar and great for the credibility of the United States, not so great for emerging markets. No, and in fact, we haven't seen one for quite some time. You point out there, Mexico, that was 94. There was obviously the Asian currency crisis, 1997, Russia, 98, Argentina, 2002. Have we had one since 2002? No, but that's exactly when the dollar began its 20-year decline. I mean, not it wasn't a, a linear decline, but it was a, a, a secular decline over those 20 years. And so the dollar suddenly strengthening. <laughs> you know, reminds us that eventually things always come full circle. And it looks likely, especially if you consider the geopolitical, you know, chaos or disorder between Ukraine and all sorts of things happening, it's quite likely that the dollar might strengthen even further. Stephen, what institutions have had success in cleaning up the mess that a strong dollar has created from time to time? Obviously, the World Bank and the IMF have had roles. Have they played their part well? Well, at what cost, I think, is often that's the question. The cleanup that is oftentimes imposed on these countries, uh, so-called emerging economies, uh, are oftentimes punitive to an extreme. And while that may be justified in terms of rectifying the, the imbalances, again, the problems predate the act of of, of the default, that the, they go back to this, this larger issue of original sin. And uh, sadly, you know, these are reminders constantly for folks living in, in countries like Argentina that they live in a fallen world, that they live in this kind of cycle of uh, what economists have called sin. Well, and you see these ridiculous amounts of inflation in these countries as well. So you have a humanitarian crisis on top of a fiscal crisis and it spreads, you know, social unrest and so on. What's the alternative? I mean, is there an alternative for these countries to having so much dollar-denominated debt? Yes. Uh, well, one is, you know, a, a kind of attempt to, to market debt in their own currency, which, believe it or not, has actually happened to some extent in the last 10 years. Well, last since 2007, there's been more uh, debt denominated in local currencies, as we, we call them. The problem, though, is that while that's happened to some extent, it's gone hand in hand with a rather alarming development, which is the rise of what's sometimes called a domestic original sin, which is a slightly different flavor of of borrowing in, in currencies abroad. Uh, so instead of the sovereign debt being denominated dollars, the corporate non-financial you know, firms in, say, Argentina are borrowing in dollars at long maturities. And so it's the exact same dynamic. It's just different players uh, becoming indebted. So, Stephen, having looked at the history of this, usually doesn't end well, at least for somebody. And there's usually a winner on the other side as well, typically an individual or a hedge fund, right? Right. That's right. That's that's absolutely right. There's a, these are these are great opportunities for for short to flock in. Name making you know, opportunities. I would, yeah. I, I would say, you know, as this, as a as an aside, that not. Just because you borrow in a in a currency other than your own does not automatically doom you. There there are clearly many examples, and 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 one of them is in fact the United States originally. But you know its debt was denominated in gold clauses. In other words, that we had to repay our our debt in gold, 
not in dollars. And we were able to, quote unquote, graduate from that state. Uh, but it's something that only seems to happen for countries that achieve some kind of hegemonic status within the larger international financial system. And we're, and we're one of those countries, obviously. Yeah. Janet Yellen used to talk about feedback loops. I mean, what will the consequences be for the United States of one or several countries defaulting? Well, I guess I think there's a there's a question here. If you look historically at what happens when this happens, like Sri Lanka, for example, this kind of canary in the coal mine, uh, the problem that we've seen in the past is that there's then a flight to safety globally. In other words, countries that are completely beyond reproach, but that nonetheless are borrowing in dollars, are subjected to the same kind of, of dynamics. And that's where the kind of coordination that we saw in the late 1990s between central bankers around the world to tame the crisis, admit that, that probably will be necessary again if things get that bad. Stephen Mim there. We're now choosing to end all conversations. Not with you, though. As always, we love to hear from you. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or send your thoughts to vquinn at Bloomberg.net. And we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Opinion is produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time, I'm Vonnie Quinn. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.